Our scripture reading today is from John 2, verses 1 through 11. This is found on page 887 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that one home as, as a gift from us. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first, this the first signs, the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you for reading our scripture this morning and. We're really glad that you've joined us again, uh, especially if you're here uh, visiting with us. We're really glad uh, that you are here and a part of this with us today. My name's Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors. Again, if I haven't met you, um, glad that you're here. So let me pray as we continue in our service and look at this passage together in just a moment. Father, thank you that you have given us the gift of your word, that you have preserved it, um, that you've written it down for our instruction so that we might come to know you fully to trust you with everything, to find the healing and wholeness that we long for in you and in you alone. So I pray now that we would see Jesus. John says that here he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. I pray that we would see his glory afresh today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I want to tell you a story about a time that Jesus was at a party and they ran out of alcohol and he made a bunch more so they could keep the party going. Now, I don't know if that's the first thing that you think about uh, when you think about who Jesus is, someone who shows up at a party and made a bunch of alcohol for people who ran out, Um, but it's probably not the very first thing you think of when you think of Jesus. It might not even be the last thing that you think about when you think about who Jesus is, Uh, especially if our imaginations have been shaped by images of Jesus that look like this. Um, This is actually one of the most, uh, this is probably the best-selling piece of art, depictions of Jesus in the world. It was painted by uh, a painter from Chicago in the 1940s by the name Walter Salman. And uh, I mean, it's a fine icon of Christ, I suppose, but we know that Jesus didn't actually look like that, that he was a, a Middle Eastern man. Uh, he did not have uh, blondish, kind of bluish eyes and hair. And, um, and, and actually, you know, I'm thankful that that's not actually what Jesus looked like, because this is not the guy you want coming to your wedding party if you're trying to really celebrate, right? Like, no offense. Like, that is not the person you want to show up. But it begs the question, who is Jesus? If that's not what he's really like, what is he really like? 
And John's gospel that we've been studying since the first of the year, that's what it is all about. John is trying to, to tell us, to show us who Jesus really is, who he truly is, what he's actually like, what kind of person he was, and how can we know that he is the one that was promised by the Old Testament, the one who fulfills all of our hopes for, for rescue, for our king, the God that, that we need, that I need, that, that our world needs. And as we walk through this story this morning, I want you to be open to discovering a Jesus that, that maybe you didn't think was possible or that you uh, thought there's just no way that that's who Jesus could actually be. I want you to be open this morning to seeing a new aspect of who Jesus is today. Actually, this passage that we're looking at today and then next week also are accounts of Jesus' life that I think really challenge some of the preconceived ideas or sort of cultural beliefs that we have about Jesus. So both this week and next week, get ready to have that view of who Jesus is expanded. So if you haven't already, I encourage you to, to open your Bible back up or grab one of those few Bibles to uh, page 887 on those few Bibles to turn to John chapter 2. If you have a phone handy, you can just go to Google and put in John, then the numeral 2, and you'll find a website that will pull up that passage for you. But I'd love for you to follow along with me as we look at these first verses in John chapter 2. And let's ask together, who is Jesus when the wine runs out? Who's Jesus when the wine runs out? Because here's the deal, the wine always runs out eventually. The wine always runs out eventually. And John sets the scene for us for the story in the first two verses of chapter 2. He says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And he also tells us, and the mother of Jesus was there. And then he adds in verse 2, and Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, in many ways, this is like a shockingly ordinary setting for an episode in one of the Gospels. Not because weddings aren't special, right? I mean, weddings are incredibly special, but they're, they're ordinary. They happen all the time. Like, weddings are just— So you're not, in these first two verses, expecting something spectacular to happen. Like, Jesus gets invited to a wedding. I'm sure that each one of you here, uh, at some point in your life, probably many times in your life, has done the same. You've been invited to a wedding, and you've gone and attended a wedding ceremony. It's an ordinary, kind of human part of life. And Jesus and his mom and his disciples, again, they're doing something very ordinary. Uh, it's at this town called Cana. So if I've got a map here, you can take a look at this. Um, this is kind of the region is called Galilee. So it's kind of, if you think about it, it's a little bit like the, a county. Like, so you might have Johnson County or Jackson County. So this is the kind of the Galilee is the region. And there's two towns there. Nazareth is the one on the lower side. That's where Jesus is from. That was where he uh, grew up. And then Cana is just a little bit to the north there, about 10 miles away is where this wedding is being held. And so, you know, this is not a, a massive geographical space. And clearly, Jesus and his family, Mary, they know uh, this, whoever is getting married, and they've been invited to this, this wedding, and they go, and they're part of the celebration. Now, just like today, wedding ceremonies back then were a big deal. But for us, typically a wedding is, you, know, you go, maybe if you're a part of the wedding, you go on Friday night and you're at the rehearsal and some of that, and you have a rehearsal dinner. But really the wedding's kind of a one-day thing. You attend, there's a, a party, unless it's a destination wedding, you're kind of just there for a day. But in first century uh, kind of Jewish custom, weddings could last up to a week, right? This, this whole long celebration. And guests uh, were expected to bring gifts to help provide for all this time and um, to support the new couple, just like today. They brought wedding gifts, but the, the family had to provide sort of food and drink for that whole 
time frame, this multiple day feast. And if the food or the wine were lacking, and that's a huge, I mean, the shame and dishonor of that is hard for us to even imagine as people who don't, who live in a much more individualistic culture and who live in a much more kind of uh, guilt culture than a, an honor and shame culture. What would be the impact if you ran out of food or drink? And we feel this today even pretty extreme, right? Like if you were at a wedding and they're serving dinner and all of a sudden the, the caterer like ran out halfway through and like half the people don't get their meals. I mean, you, you'd remember that, right? If you were ever at that wedding, you'd remember probably the rest of your life, much more than any other wedding you'd gone to. And just imagine how much greater that is in a culture that is deeply connected, much more collectivistic, much more based in an honor and shame. This would just mark them for the rest of their lives. But here at this wedding that Jesus and his mom and his disciples are at, that happens. The unthinkable happens. The wine runs out. And Mary, she goes and finds Jesus and, and says, you know, what are we going to do about this? She asks Jesus for his help. Take a look. We don't know exactly what did Mary anticipate Jesus doing in that moment. And clearly she knows, right? She was there when the angel announced to her that you were going to have a child by the Holy Spirit overshadowing you. She was there when he was born and the shepherds arrived and said they had seen angels when the wise men came and brought gifts. She was there when Jesus as a child is like in the temple uh, debating with these rabbis and, and kind of gets left behind as they're on the way. She knows that this is not an ordinary human being. But had, and John said this is the kind of the first of his science. Had Jesus done any miracles? What did Mary expect him to do? Or was she just going to him because she knows he's his old, her oldest son and, and he's responsible and, and maybe he can think of a solution in this moment. But his response to her, my hour is not yet come, it, it points to, she's asking for something more. And, and I love that even as he says, kind of, he puts her off a little bit. He says, my, my hour has not come, my time's not come. She still looks to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Verse five. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And so as readers in this account, look, we're, we're, the suspense is building. What is going to happen? There's a major crisis. The, the wine has run out. It seems obvious at this point that most of the guests, even maybe those in charge, don't yet fully know this has happened. And there's this window where maybe something can be fixed. But what is going to happen and, and next, John pulls us aside as readers, and he's like, I want to give you a little information here. Verse 6, he says this, Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus is going to do something with those jars in a moment, but John just wants us to know, these, these are here, and they were used for kind of this, not, not just for like washing your hands before you eat, but sort of this idea of, of being ritually clean and pure according to the law of Moses that was given. They were special. They were set apart. They were part of this tradition that had been built up around trying to obey this Mosaic law. And Jesus is about to commandeer them, to repurpose them, to re 
design them, redefine them. Look what he says in verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. I mean, mean, just notice real quick here that they do exactly as Mary instructed them. Jesus says what they should do, and they go do it, right? He says, fill them up. They fill them up. Take it to the master of the feast. They take it to the master of the feast. This kind of picture of whatever Jesus tells them to do, they do it. Now we're all holding our breath as these servants take the wine out to this master of the feast, which is can be some kind of combination of like a master of ceremonies, kind of like an MC, but also kind of like the head event coordinator for the, for the gathering. And they bring him this wine, this water that has been turned into wine, and they hand it to him. And I love that John adds this comment that he didn't know where it came from, but the servants knew. <laughs> I just love the little parenthetical. He didn't know where it came from, but the servants do. They knew where this had come from. And he takes a sip, and he's like, wow, usually people, they serve like the very best of the wine first, and then after people have started to get a little, little tipsy, they've had a lot, then they bring out the two-buck chuck then and start serving that. <laughs> he says, you, you saved the best for last, verse 10, but you have kept back the good wine until now. And not only has Jesus provided wine and a ton of it, right? Remember how those jars, he said there were six of them. They each held 20 or 30 gallons each. I did a little math on that this week. It required, you know, some converting of, of gallons to liters and milliliters. But I, this is about 700 plus bottles of wine, 60 cases of wine. Jesus made a lot of wine for this party. But not only did he make a lot of it, he made it the best I mean, Jesus truly, he saves the day here. He keeps the party going. He rescues this newlywed couple and their families from decades of future shame and ridicule that would have been, that's all that would have been remembered about their wedding for the rest of their lives. And again, we don't know why they ran out. Like, had they just poorly planned? Did were the guests a little thirstier than they anticipated? I, we don't know. But Jesus steps in. And here's what, it's kind of a hidden miracle too because no one really knows. The master of the feast, he just thinks that, well, they found some great wine in the back. This is awesome. And right here, Jesus won't let us miss who he is, what he's like, the wine that he brings. And it brings us to a key question this morning. And that is this. What will you do when the wine runs out. What will you do when the wine runs out? Because it will. It always does. And here's what I mean by that. That there always comes a moment in our lives where whatever we've been looking to to find a sense of security or hope or just a sense that we're okay, that we're accepted, that we belong, when that thing will fail you. It could be a financial crisis. It could be a health crisis. It could be something in your job or your career. It could be something that happens at school. It could be a rejection by a best friend. It could be something that unfolds in a relationship with a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend where all of a sudden you thought you knew what was going on and everything shattered. The wine will eventually run out. What will you do then? 
what John is showing us here is that you have to look to the one who brings the best rescue and the fullest joy. The best rescue and the fullest joy. Because Jesus always brings a better wine. Jesus always brings a better wine. First, Jesus brings the better wine of, of, a better, of, of the best rescue. And that's the symbolism here of these, of these six stone Jewish uh, purification vessels, these, these jars for washing. Because they were really, they, they represent this, this picture of the whole Old Testament system way of approaching God. Of all of these laws that God had given to his people, which were a gift. And I think sometimes we look back, it's like, oh, the law, the Old Testament, this is, this is bad, and that was the angry God, and, and he wasn't gracious. No, the whole Old Testament, this teaching that God gave to his people after he rescues them out of Egypt and takes them to, to Mount Sinai, and he gives them the Ten Commandments and all these other laws, they are a gift for how God's people can relate to him as a holy God. It is a gift that he's given to his people. But in Jesus, the best has arrived. Those were good. Jesus is the best. Something new, something different, something better has come in Jesus. I mean, you can think about it like this. When uh, the architects who were designing the Coffin Center downtown for the performing arts, like before they ever broke ground, they did lots of drawings, and they even built these incredible architectural models, right, of what this building is going to look like. And that's an incredibly good thing. Those models in themselves are incredible works of art. But the model only points to the greater thing that's coming that is the actual building where you can walk into the space and hear the symphony perform or watch a play unfold. And and when you come to that moment of stepping into the actual building, it is so much more incredible than even the incredible goodness of the model. Uh, same thing, I often think about this when I'm uh, getting ready in the morning. I Early, I go downstairs, and there's this room that we have, and has a big kind of window, and it's got a skylight, and, and I often that's where I drink my coffee and, and pray and start my day, and it's always dark when I go down there. I go down there about 5, 5.30 in the morning. That's where I start my day. And so I turn on multiple lamps in that space, but then by, you know, 7.30, when the sun rises, by 7.45 or 8, when I'm leaving the room, like you can't even tell the lamps are on because the sun has so overpowered the light from those bulbs. It's easy to forget to turn off the lights. That's what's happening with Jesus as he transforms those jars of ritual purification into vessels for wine. This is saying, this was good, but something so much better has come. Something so much better has arrived in me. It's the best wine. Again, John wants us to see what Jesus is doing here through this miracle. The water jars represented the good, God's grace and the gift of the law, but something better has come. This is what Jesus, or John, has been setting us up to think and see about Jesus from chapter 1. Chapter 1, 14, verse 14, Jesus is being described as the Word of God. And John writes these words. He says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Again, even here, John says that what's happening in this moment is that Jesus' glory is being manifested, being revealed. We have seen his glory of the only Son from the Father. Then notice the language of fullness, full of grace and truth. 
And then on to verse 16. And from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Again, that language of fullness, the, the servants filled the jars to the brim. They filled them up to the, the fullness. Jesus is full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have received not just, not just grace, but grace upon grace, grace in place of grace, grace on top of grace, grace and truth in him. And when we have those moments, when the wine runs out, we all have moments and methods of trying to cope with that and deal with that on our own. Ways of scrambling, ways of trying to cover, ways of trying to, you know, if you use the metaphor from the Garden of Eden, ways of trying to sow sort of these fig leaves on to try to take care of ourselves and deal with our own problems. But that is what has got us into this mess in the first place, is trying to do this on our own. Apart from a relationship with the one who made us, can show us the way that life works best in relationship with him. And yet the story of the scriptures is one of God constantly stepping into those places where we have tried our very best to sew together fig leaves and it is not working. And meeting us there with grace and mercy and forgiveness and healing and wholeness. So even in that moment in the garden, when Adam and Eve say, look, we're gonna find right and wrong, good and bad on our own, we don't need you anymore, God, and they're exiled outside of the garden, he doesn't leave them, right? He replaces those fig leaves with clothing that he has covered them with. And when these people end up enslaved in Egypt, he rescues them out, he gives them the gift of the law. The whole story of the scriptures is one of God providing when the wine runs out. And only Jesus can do that. In him, the best rescue has arrived. And that self-salvation project will only leave you in a place of misery yourself and making those around you miserable as well. So receive the rescue that Jesus is offering. Because only Jesus can bring the fullest joy. Only Jesus can bring the fullest joy. And, and that's really one of the main symbols or the kind of the pictures of what joy is uh, depicted as in the Bible is as wine. That's why I think, this, again, that John pulls all these threads together. If you were just to do a, a search in an online Bible and look for everywhere that wine has come, there's a couple different aspects. Wine can be a picture of judgment, of wrath. So you see that of, the idea of wine being poured out as a, as a judgment. Um, but often it is a picture of delight and celebration and abundance and rejoicing. And the Bible is also clear, very clear, that wine can and ought to be used as this moment of celebration and joy, but it also can be abused as well. And I just want to even pause and acknowledge in this moment that all of us in this room probably have different backgrounds and relationships to alcohol and wine, and maybe, maybe you've seen that devastate your family. So maybe that connotation of, of alcohol is actually not a positive, joyful picture of celebration for you, but one that, that feels like, actually, this is something that ruined my life, my family's life. And the Bible is clear that it has the power to do any of God's good gifts. It can be ruined and distorted in that way. 
And I just want to say, like, if you are in that place where you um, have had that experience in your, your own life, in your family's life, uh, one, you, we, we actually host AA at our downtown campus every Friday, so you're, that's a resource, but we as your pastors want to be with you in those spaces. Of any addiction, of any, any trial, whether that's with you or someone in your family, you're not alone in that. There's not shame in coming and getting help in that. Again, for you or for your family. But in the Bible, there's this, this note of joy and celebration. It's not one of self-indulgence, but of joy and celebration. It's a picture of the joy and abundance in the Garden of Eden. It's a picture of the joy and abundance that's coming in the new heavens and the new earth one day. And Jesus wants to know that he has not just come. This is the picture of why he's not just come to save us from our sins, but he's come to save us to joy in him. So it's just a matter of, of Jesus kind of setting you free from a death that you owed so you can kind of go on and live your life alone by yourself. No, it's about him saving you into a relationship with him, which is the only place that you can find the joy that you long for. That's what he is offering. A fullness of joy in him. And we're all looking for that joy. And especially right now after the last two years of pandemics and politics and all that, we're all longing for joy. I saw an article uh, just published at the beginning of the year, like 12 surprising ways that people are trying to find joy in, in 2022. And, and I promise it wasn't just like, here are 12 new bourbons you should try this year. Um, it, was, it was something different than that. You know, biking and new hobbies and all this kind of thing, just 12 surprising ways. But this is not just our moment. I think, you know, we all have a, a presentism of like, gosh, this moment's so hard. But there have been other hard moments where people have been looking for joy in history. Uh, I recently uh, listened to a story about the sort of the, the origins and the legacy of Soul Train, the television program that featured... Um, black music and dancing in, a, in an era when it was rare that you would see a person of color on television at all, and even rare that you would see joy depicted in that space. But Don Cornelius, when he put together Soul Train, wanted to offer people a depiction of black joy even in the midst of so much suffering and trial and oppression and all that was going on in the country then and, and continues in, in so many ways and the results and, and ongoing nature of so many of the things that have unfolded in our history, there was this picture of joy in that. We're all longing for that. We were all created for joy, for celebration. Because pleasure and feasting and celebration, those are not, those aren't our idea. Those aren't the enemy's idea. Those are God's idea. He created us for those things. The lie of the evil one from the very beginning has been that God wants to restrict joy, that he wants to take something from you. That's the, the, the whisper to Eve in the garden is God's holding out on you. There's something that you could get if you ate of this tree that would bring you more joy than doing what God has told you to do. So pleasure Joy, connection, laughter, these are God's idea. C.S. Lewis, in his brilliant little book called The Screwtape Letters, where he kind of the imaginative device that Lewis uses in this book is, he sort of imagines, what would it be like if you had sort of a senior tempter demon sort of mentoring a younger tempter demon on how he could draw humans away from God? So that's, that's the setup of the book. It's this exchange of letters back and forth, this older, more experienced tempter giving advice to this younger one on, on how you could pull people away, humans away from a relationship with God. 
in one section they write this. It says, never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on God's ground. It is his invention, not ours. All we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which God has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. He's saying, look out, the moment that you rely too heavily on pleasure, you're actually drawing humans into something that God made them for. And you can try to distort that. You can try to make it in degrees or times or ways that that he's forbidden. But just be careful. You are on enemy ground when you're dealing with pleasure and joy and celebration. Okay, but here's here's an honest question. Is church, though, the place where joy goes to die? Have you, have you ever felt that way? Maybe if you're a kid or maybe when you were growing up as a kid, like, you know, don't run. Shh, don't talk too loud. It's church. I actually do sometimes tell kids not to run because early on I had a kid trip and fall and actually to get stitches because they hit their head on one of these pews. So for safety, don't run. But for joy, you can run at church. Just be careful around the pews. We don't want to send anyone to the hospital. But like that's the, that's the, I think we carry that if you grew up in church. It's like, church is where I've got to, you know, I've got to button up and I've got to sit straight and I've got to be quiet. And, and there's a goodness, right, to approaching God with a holy reverence that, that we, our, our very breath, our, our beating heart is dependent on God upholding us by the power of his word. There is a rightness to an awe and a wonder and, and almost a, a trembling before the majesty of who God is, right? Like that, that is, the Bible gives us that picture of who God is. And even our space, this building, like it kind of draws you in that direction, right? There's the pews, we've got this high ceiling, the stained glass, there's a, a sense of solemnity and beauty that is here. And it's not a bad thing. But, but the king has come, friends. And he has come that you might have life and have it to the abundance, the fullness, and not just someday later on in the future after you die, but right now, beginning now, you can experience some of the joy that the king is bringing. And so we, when we gather together, we have got to celebrate because Jesus has risen from the dead. Death has been defeated. We have a hope that cannot be shaken. So we've got we've to celebrate. We've got to rejoice. We've got to laugh. We've got to move. We've got to clap. We've got to dance even. Like a little dancing. You know, nothing. <laughs> we have to move because Jesus is alive. The king has come. And again, he longs for our joy to be made complete in him. Later on in John, in the upper room discourse, in, in, in those final words before he goes to the cross, he's like, I want my joy and your joy, our mutual joy, to be complete in one another. And that note resounds throughout Jesus' ministry. Wherever Jesus shows up and there is joy that is being restricted by injustice or unrighteousness or oppression is where Jesus eliminates it. I mean, eliminates those barriers, right? Like providing healing. And, and even in this moment, right, where, where joy is about to be threatened by a major social faux pas and no wine, he shows up and he brings the joy. Friends, life with Jesus is not an obstacle to the joy that you are longing for. 
In fact, it's the only way to it. Life with Jesus is not an obstacle to the joy that you are longing for. It's the only way to it. So how do we begin to experience that kind of joy? Because Jesus says it starts even now. And we just need to listen to the words that Mary says to the servant. Do whatever he tells you. How do you find the joy you're longing for? Do whatever Jesus tells you. First and foremost, believe in him. Entrust yourself to him. That's why John is writing down every one of these accounts in his gospels, that we would come to know and trust and entrust ourselves to Jesus just as he has done, just as Mary did, just as his disciples did in this moment, that we would believe in him. Respond in faith to give our allegiance to Jesus and by faith to do whatever he tells us to do. It is a willing sort of faith-fueled, trust-filled obedience to Jesus, especially when, even when, it seems counterintuitive, that brings us to a place of joy in Jesus. Maybe if you're newer to faith or considering faith, I'd encourage you to talk to someone who's walked with Jesus, not just for a couple weeks, but for a couple decades or more. And I'm sure that they will tell you stories of moments when they obeyed God that seemed totally counterintuitive to what culture and the wisdom of the world would say was the right thing to do. And maybe not right away, but eventually they discovered a profound joy. They wouldn't have gotten any other way. I want you to listen to one of the top scholars, top Bible nerds on the Gospel of John. His name's D.A. Carson. And I, I love how he reflects in this moment when Jesus sort of seems to tell Mary no, but then he kind of does what she asks anyway. It's kind of an interpretive problem. Like, what, what's going on here? I love, what he, I love his reflection on this. He says, in short, in verse 3, Mary approaches Jesus as his mother and is reproached. But in verse 5, she responds as a believer and her faith is honored. She still does not know what he would do, but she's committed the matter to him. That's, that's what this life of faith with Jesus is. Not necessarily knowing what he's going to do or if he's going to do it on our timetable or in any sense of how we would want him to do it, but entrusting the matter to him. That's the life of faith that leads to joy, doing whatever he says, even when you're not sure what he will do or how things will turn out. And this is why it's so important to trust him with everything in our lives, not just with sort of the religious or spiritual things. I think it's easy to think about a relationship with Jesus as this is a way I get the spiritual problem of sin dealt with in my life, and that is true. But that that's sort of somehow disconnected to my work and when I go to class at school and just the rest of my Monday ordinary life. But all of that is interconnected. Jesus is interested in the whole of you. He's just as passionate about what you're doing, getting kids ready to go to school in the morning or meetings you're having at work or looking for a job, whatever it might be, as, as anything else in the rest of your life. And until you start bringing those everyday problems, because this is a really everyday kind of in reality of life problem. The wine ran out. And they go to Jesus and say, will you help us? Not Jesus, will you forgive my sins? Can you get us some more wine? You will not have a real relationship with Jesus until you start coming to him with the we ran out of wine moments in your life. 
when you come to him and say, look, the car is broken and the bank account is empty and I don't know what we're going to do. Or the doctor just called and the results are not good. I don't know what I'm going to do. Those are the moments when you have to go to Jesus and say, help me. Yes, rescue me, save me, forgive me. Do that, but help me in this. It's the only place you're going to come to know him and experience the joy. You're not just functionally trusting in yourself for those things. So where are you holding back from doing whatever he tells you? Where are you holding back from Jesus because you think that if you were to do what he called you to do, you'd actually find less joy? Because if I'm honest, in my own life, I mean, that's why I usually don't obey Jesus. It's like, I think that it's not that I'm gonna, something good is going to be taken away from me. That there's going to be discomfort, that I'm going to find less joy. And this can be in any area of life, but here's a few big ones that I think we really struggle with, believing that obeying Jesus will lead to more joy. Uh, one is anything related to human sexuality, right? The, the, the Bible's design, God's design revealed in the scripture for human sexuality is so countercultural, increasingly so. So it's really hard. I get it is really hard sometimes to look at what our culture says about human sexuality, look at the Bible and think, if I do this, I obey Jesus' design, then I'm going to find more joy. Another huge one is finances. It's, it's sometimes hard to believe that like, like being more generous, giving more away, living a life of, of simplicity, life of generosity, that seems like in a consumer-driven culture, that seems like that is not the way to get joy. Because our culture says joy is you get more stuff gives you joy, not less. That's a really hard one. Forgiveness in relationships. That's another huge one. We want to hang on to bitterness that if we let that go, that, that somehow what happened to us meant nothing. But Jesus promises joy on the other side of that. Maybe it's an addiction. I mean, addiction, all an addiction is is saying that this is just the voice of something louder in your life, saying that this is the only thing that will possibly give you joy. At a spiritual level, obviously there's a chemical, biological component to addiction, but spiritually, essentially saying, if you give me up, you're going to die. You won't find joy anymore in your life. Jesus meets us with a a joy that is deeper than circumstance. A joy that has, and this is key, a joy that has room for lament and room for mourning because we're not at the wedding feast yet. It hasn't come yet. And people still die and people still get sick and there is still disease and all kinds of poverty and oppression and injustice in the world. So yes, we lament, but we don't lament only. We also rejoice. So as we wrap up, the question is, will you believe that there's something better on the other side of the wine running out? And often it's only when the wine has run out that we're able to finally see a light so lovely on the other side. Because on the cross, it looked like the wine was running out, friends. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, it looked like the one who had even brought the best wine, that the wine was running out on the cross. 
But Jesus says that that was his hour, the hour where his glory was revealed most fully, that his time had not yet come at the wedding of Cana. That's the point of that, my hour has not yet come. My true hour of my glory being revealed has not come at a wedding, but it comes on the cross. And through his satisfaction of God's wrath, through his sacrifice on the cross, his spilled blood, the victory was won. And because on the third day, do you remember how John sets this up in John chapter two here? On the third day, they're at the wedding in Cana. That's not an accident that he includes that deal, detail. On the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. And the wine of eternal life will never run out. Jesus really is the life of the party for eternity. And right now, we just get a foretaste. And our lives are still so often marked by longing and lament. But one day the party will come in full, that there will be the marriage feast of the Lamb. Friends, the party is not in hell. It's in heaven. Hell is the place where no one ever returns your call, where you're increasingly isolated and alone. The party is the marriage supper of the Lamb. When Jesus comes to make all things new, this is how the prophets describe it in the book of Amos. Just listen to the poetic description of wine when all things are set right again. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading out the grapes. This is a picture of such abundance they can't even keep up with harvesting. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills and I will bring my people Israel back from exile and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine and they will make gardens and eat their fruit and I will plant Israel in their own land and never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. So will you join the wedding feast? And will you invite others to join also? Because who do you know who doesn't yet have that joy that Jesus offers? We want to take a moment in this service, as we've been doing for the past four weeks, to pray that they might come to know his joy. We're in the fourth week of this thing we're calling E90, which is just taking 90 seconds a day, for 90 days to pray for nine people who don't yet know the joy that we have come to experience in Jesus. And thank you for those of you who are signed up for the text messages. You've been sharing stories. In fact, we've heard two stories recently of people who have been prayed for who have come to faith in Jesus, that they've come to find the joy already in these first four weeks. And so many other stories that you've texted us of of how God is moving, conversations that have been open, people calling you that you've been praying for, that you haven't talked to them in, in years, and all of a sudden they called you because... God's working in their lives. So I just want to pause right now and give us those 90 seconds to pray for those people. And if you're newer with us, if you're here visiting because of child dedication, just enjoy these 90 seconds of silence. Maybe pray for yourself or someone you know who's looking for joy. So let's start those 90 seconds now. Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus, that we might experience the joy that you made us for. Thank you for pursuing us and loving us even when we run away from you and say we want nothing to do with you. You will not leave us alone. And you gave yourself up 
even while we were your enemies, that we might be forgiven and experience the joy that we so deeply long for. So as we continue in our service together, would we rejoice in Jesus together? Amen.